Are you looking for happy money? Today, we talk about happy go money with Melissa Leong. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Melissa's energy oozes through the speakers during this conversation. She is a personal finance expert and the author of the book, Happy Go Money. I suggest everyone goes out and buys a copy of her book. It is fantastic and she is an excellent writer. During this conversation, we talk about the importance of, in her words, the Oh Crap Fund. We talk about how to buy happiness. Is it possible to buy happiness? Can we allocate our money on things that will actually increase our levels of happiness? And how our innate personalities impact our money relationships. And we talk about so much more. A statement from the conversation that really stuck out for me was when Melissa said, stop and ask yourself, what is my money for? And is that actually going to make me happy? Melissa's story is inspiring. She is a woman who is making such a positive impact in many people's lives. And I appreciate her for all she does. Head over to melissaleong.com for more information about Melissa or check her out on Instagram at lissleong and head over to Amazon or wherever else you buy your books and buy her book, Happy Go Money, today. Also, this week, I want to give away a free copy of Melissa's book. If you go over to Apple Podcast or Spotify and leave a review on our show, The Most Hated F Word, screenshot it and send me a copy. I'll then enter you in a draw for Melissa's book. Please send all screenshots by Monday, March 29th. Thank you very much and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to The Most Hated F Word. Today, my guest is Melissa Leong. She is one of Canada's best loved authorities on personal finance. She's a sought after speaker, national media personality, best-selling author, and award-winning writer. She's the author of the Feel Good Finance Guide, Happy Go Money, which I'm excited to dive into, and is the resident money expert on Canada's leading daytime talk show, The Social, on CTV. She's the host of the top business podcast, Money Moves, Conversations About Investing by the Globe and Mail's content studio. Her articles have appeared in newspapers across the country, including as the personal finance writer for the Financial Post. She's also a go-to money expert for radio and television programs, appearing on BNN, CBC Radio, Breakfast Television, CP24, Global News, Your Morning, and News Talk 1010, to name a few. In her spare time, she mentors youth and volunteers for organizations that promote the advancement and empowerment of young women. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. I am very excited. I have listened and read your book a couple of times and it really speaks to me. And I'm excited to ask you some specific questions around the book. You've listened to my book as well? Oh yeah, you're a great narrator. You made me laugh several times, actually. So you have my voice in your ear. You have <laughs> words on the page. I don't know whether to apologize, but thank you for your devotion. <laughs> no, you are very good at reading books. I think an, a side thing 
you could do is read other people's books because you have good tonage and yeah, it's just really, it's a pleasant listen. Side hustle. Yes. Thank you. So my first question, we're going to have dive a lot into the actual book, Happy Go Money. But my first one, some listeners might not know that you have another book, not Happy Go Money that we're going to be talking about, but some vampire books. And my first question may or may not be related to these vampire novels that you have, but I have read that you are fully prepared for a zombie invasion. Is this correct? Yes and no. <laughs> when when I originally said that I was fully prepared for a zombie invasion, I was. Like, I had a plan. I knew exactly what was going to happen. My husband and I, we were on the same page in terms of who would run out to the grocery store with weapons, you know, who would be, you know, boarding up the windows at the house. But then I had kids. And now I think, you know what? All plans are just going to go out the window because I will be boarding up the windows. And my two-year-old, who is, he's feral. I don't know what is happening with him. He just does anything that looks like danger. He is for it. And he will just be (laughs) opening up the door, inviting all the flesh-eating creatures inside for playtime. So, yes, the answer is I was. (laughs) And then, of course, kids threw a wrench in that plan. Okay. Well, I was, I was curious where that came from, but it makes sense. I know my kids would uh, do the same. They would wreck it. You know what? When I was a little girl, I dreamed of becoming Stephen King. Mm. And so there is this part of me that loves, of course, storytelling, because I'm, I spent a lot of, large part of my career in journalism. So I love telling stories, but there is a part of me that loves scary stories. Mm. And so that's where <laughs> the, uh, the vampire novels that um, they actually did really well. I'm really proud of those. It's just a passion project. So passion project, over 70,000 copies sold. Not yes. So and I self published them and I didn't, I, uh, you know, all the marketing and everything that was done on my end was just me out of my basement in the middle of the night, you know, keeping the hours of an actual vampire. Good for you. Yeah. Well, I have not read them. Uh, maybe that's my next read, but, uh, <laughs> I, I no, think that's they're fantastic. For, they're for, um, 15 year old girls. Right? They're yeah. young adult. Yes. Not exactly their target market, but, um, a book that I am your target market was Happy Go Money. And like I said in the intro, it was fantastic. And the first question is going to be geared around kind of the impetus or the reason why you wrote this book. And first, I, I just want to fill you in on this podcast. We talk a lot about stories and the money stories that play out in our head. And a big focus of mine is the intersection of, of our stories that when they intersect with our money, our minds and what matters most. And a mentor of mine always talks about how our life is our story and our story is our life. And it has so much truth in life in general, and especially when we look at our money stories. And those money stories is that narrative that we have on repeat in our mind that goes over and over that we tell to ourselves and to others. Could be, as you know, people saying, I'll be happy when I have X amount of money. I can never be happy or I never will have enough money or so forth. These money narratives are going on in our head all the time. So my question for you is, at what point in your money story or your, your story of life made you think, you know what, I need to write this book. And why did you write this book? Amongst so many different other personal finance books, you really focus on happiness, the mind, positive psychology. So where were you at in your money story that made you want to write this book? I like that you mentioned the stories that 
we tell ourselves. This narrative that we create for ourselves is really what is playing out in our lives every day. And that doesn't just pertain to money. It pertains to everything. And obviously money is just a tool. It has no meaning. You know that. We, we ascribe meaning to it. And so I you know, was working at the Financial Post at the time. And I wrote about money every single day, telling the story of people's lives, essentially, you know, birth, weddings, love, death. And I had always wanted to write a personal finance guide that I thought would solve a problem for people, which was the thing that I talked to my friends about every day, trying to be happy. You know, what, what, what is your money for? Well, I'm just trying to be happy. I'm trying to get that raise. I'm trying to save up a million dollars, whatever the, the stories that we tell ourselves. Right. But if you have ever dreamed of writing a book or a nonfiction book, people will often say, yes, you need to solve a problem. And just because you have a voice and something to say, it doesn't always mean that it's, it's going to hit the right note. For me, the driving force behind creating this story, which is it starts with the story of my life. It's something that happened to my husband. I married him because he was the happiest man in Canada. I thought, you, you happy man, get over here. We're going to have a life of show tunes and practical jokes. It's going to be great. And a few months after we got married, he fell very ill. He was terrorized by depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. And very quickly, my happy, happy man became someone who was in such painful hell. And there was nothing I could do about it. I'm a type A personality. So I wanted to fix it. I wanted to solve it and I couldn't. But I realized that I can be happy for me. And hopefully that will allow me to be strong enough to be happy enough for both of us. And I went on this journey to try to find happiness. You know, I, I was all in, you know, I was going to Buddhist temples. I was listening to resilience gurus and hours of podcasts. And I read every book and every research paper I could find on positive psychology. And in the end, what I realized is that very little of it actually talks about money. Mm. Very little of it talks about the connection between money and happiness. Uh, there's a lot of research, but less discussion about how that fits with your life. And so I decided to combine all the things that I was talking about in the day when it comes to money and all the things that I had learned about happiness. And that's what came about with Happy Go Money. Wow. I appreciate you being just honest and authentic in terms of speaking about your life, because I think your life mirrors so many of our own is that there's ups and downs. Life is not this linear progression that we think it is when despite marrying the happiest man in Canada, life happens. And I guess I'm going to ask you another question around that is at what point, and I'm sure there was never one specific point, it's an accumulation, but is there a certain, I guess, point in that journey that you decided to be like, hey, I know I'm a type A personality, but I now need to, I can't fix this situation, but I can go inwards and to go on the journey like you just described. Was there was there a point where you just realized that the thing that I control is inside of here? And the reason why I'm asking that is because the same thing as I hear in your book is money's out here, these external things, but the happiness is derives from inside. So I guess from your personal journey, was there a moment or a point where you thought like, okay, I can't fix this out external thing. I got to go inward. I think this pertains especially to the pandemic. We are, you know, every email that we start <laughs> with, 
Hello, how are you? I hope you are well in these unprecedented and uncertain times. And because there is so much that is unknown, I think it can feel out of control. And I think that often our response to that is to try to find a sense of control Mm -hmm. that may be through buying things. Mm -hmm. I think that I definitely, given everything that I know about money, have still fallen victim to retail therapy because money is something that I can control. Mm -hmm. I can't control whether my kid goes to school next week, whether I'm going to see my parents this year, next year, whether, you know, there's so much that, um, that we're grieving, but one thing that we can do is buy something right now that Mm -hmm. makes us feel good in this moment. And so when, when I think back to my, you know, that year with my husband, when he first became sick, he was sick again, actually in 2019 with the birth of our second son. And in those times, really, when life comes, when the storm comes, you're just trying to survive. And everything that I was doing, I I think in the moment, I thought, this has got to help. This is, (laughs) you know, this anti-inflammatory mood boosting diet that I'm going to try will also help my husband. But you're just trying to get through the day with as much grace and self-kindness as possible. and. If you can learn a lot, that's great. But sometimes that revelation or that epiphany is only something that can be appreciated afterwards Mm. when things have settled down a little bit. That is when you can take stock. That is when you can say, these are the lessons that I've learned. And I am in a position where I can share them with other people who may be struggling or to help them reduce the pain if they run in and when actually they run Mm. into that storm. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate a couple of things that you said there is one is when you acknowledge that despite the knowledge that you have, you succumb to retail therapy. And I mean, we're human. These are our emotions that were hardwired, thanks our ancestors to just in, instinctive actions. And I appreciate you saying that because it normalizes other people who have those reactions, especially in the personal finance place where so many Individuals speak like, oh, don't you dare do this. Don't you dare do this. But uh, you alluded to the storm, I think you said, and our emotions do that to us all the time. So I thank you for acknowledging that. I don't know who's perfect in the money sense, (laughs) in the money world. You know, money, you know, money is so hard to talk about. And if you think about it, actually, regardless if you're an expert, regardless if you're a planner or not, when you talk to your family and friends, you understand that it comes with, it's not just about dollars and cents. It comes with pride and vanity and people Mm. have judgment about different behaviors and they have judgment about themselves and shame. And so if I cannot be brave enough to tell you my BS, then how can I expect you to face your own truths? How can I expect you to look at your own behaviors with money with Mm -hmm. any kind of confidence if I'm just going to hide behind, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea that we're experts. (laughs) We we know our portfolios are perfect. Everything (laughs) is is okay. Yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate that. And actually I pulled out a quote from your book that struck a chord with me, which my initial reaction was like, no, that's not true. And it was only because I was trying to dismiss the feelings that it evoked in me because I knew it was true. But here's the quote I'm going to actually tell you that because again, I wanted to ignore it because it, it hurt, <laughs> not hurt, but here's the quote. Some of you are uber frugal, even though that description sounds wonderful, like a smart minimalist 
IKEA shelf, it means you are robbing yourself of joy by not investing in other priorities or hurting a relationship by being cheap. And I always had a money mind and my wife, she's a public health nurse. And I always had this dysfunction. Now I know (laughs) viewpoint that, Hey, I'm the financial guy. I know what I'm doing. And yeah, I was robbing our relationship by being cheap. There's no other word other than being cheap without even (laughs) checking in with her emotions of what she felt because I was the finance guy. So that line really stuck to me. I don't know if you want to elaborate on your thoughts when you wrote that line or experiences with that, but that one really stuck out to me. I think that you can be an extreme. I think that you can mm-hmm. be someone who who is hoarding money, perhaps, and and not allowing yourself to enjoy any of it or not allowing yourself to take risks with it. And I think that you can be the opposite, which is the super spender. And I think that a lot of attention is paid to someone who is frivolous with money, who who spends at a whim. But the other side is people consider that to be a virtue. But in my relationship, it's not, you know, my mm-hmm. husband is the, some, is the spender and I am the person who is a saver. But over the years, because I talk so much about looking at your relationship with money, and that means looking at the way that your family talked about money and what kinds of things did you absorb from you, the way that your dad handled money and how angry your mom got when she, he over tipped. Mm-hmm. And I, you can't see right now because it's a podcast, but I'm over tipping mm-hmm. is in air quotes. I have a hard time parting with money. And my husband said that to me a couple of a couple of days ago, actually, when we were having an argument, he said, you really have a really, really hard time parting with money. And I got defensive, but in actuality, that is, that is the case. And it's not, it's not always a good thing when it's too far, Mm -hmm. you know, when the scales are tipped too far in one end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talk about your parents and, you know, we're both parents of young children and we, we know by observing how much they're learning from our our behaviors and learning more so from our actions versus our words. And for money, it's no different. They're learning, they're absorbing what we're saying, the feelings around money. When we talk about money stories, specifically yours, because that's who we're chatting with today, can you take us back to the early days of Melissa and maybe talk about how money was framed, the relationship your parents had with money, and it might even start back in the Shanghai restaurant in Winnipeg where uh, your grandparents, I believe, had the restaurant and you got to watch them work. I heard there's a lot of plum sauce on your fingers from your book. (laughs) But yeah, just (laughs) maybe maybe start with how your money story started evolving. And obviously at that young age, you didn't know that, but in hindsight, looking back. Let me tell this story in in what I thought I learned and then Mm -hmm. what I actually learned. What I thought I learned was that money was only given to you if you toiled for it. So it was something that you worked so hard for. I saw my grandparents and my uncles and my father and mother, they worked countless hours every holiday until I was the age of, I don't even know, I I probably, I've never probably spent a New Year's Eve with my parents, never spent Mother's Day with my parents because on the holidays, they were working at the restaurant. And that wasn't something that I felt sad about. That was something that I was proud of. I thought, look at how hard they work. I am going to work that hard. And when I work hard, I will see the fruits of my labor by being paid for it. 
And so that is how I made that connection. I thought that it was a a good lesson. I thought that I had learned such diligence from this lesson. But unconsciously, I think what I had I didn't realize was that that because I saw them work so hard for their money, I was afraid of losing it. I was afraid that it was a finite amount that look at how much you suffer for it. And if you suffer for it, it's something you should guard very carefully or use in a way that is only for say, um, charity. My grandfather was extremely, extremely generous. And so was my father. And that was something that I thought money was for. I mean, you learn from your parents what money is for, mm-hmm. but that has not served me as I've gotten older. The hard work has, but I'm sure I could have learned that lesson another way. But uh, the idea that my money is this finite amount that you suffer for, that's not a good way to view, for me, money as a self-employed person, because sometimes I think, I worked so hard, I should be rewarded, but that's not how it works, you know, especially in a scenario as a young woman, a woman of color, if you don't advocate for yourself, your hard work doesn't always mean you'll get a raise. Mm. And so I can see later as you know, it's still evolving in my mind, my, my um, attitudes about money and how they're not serving me and perhaps not serving my family and my marriage. But Mm -hmm. that is probably a um, honest and unformed Mm -hmm. thought yeah. In my mind that I was just working through like you're my therapist, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, again, I think your answer is just so, you have so many gems in there. You help people realize that, hey, we do have these unconscious behaviors that are really influencing how we think, feel, and act around money. And I like how, you know, you, you've brought in some awareness towards that. And you remind me of a saying that we're always aspiring and never arriving. And with our money stories are no different. This is, this is just a, the journey of life is always this, this climbing of a mountain that had, never has a top. But I think that's where the joy comes in. So I appreciate that. And is it 70 years that the restaurant was there? Yes, it ran for 70 years. Wow. And I think people think, oh, that's so sad. Your, you know, your family ran this restaurant. And now where is the, where is the legacy? Look at the, look where the building used to be. It's basically a parking lot. And, you know, I always try to remind some of my, my family members that uh, the legacy is us. Oh, you know, yeah. you made this money, but it wasn't for, you know, to build this restaurant into a super restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was to use this money to give your family uh, a foundation to grow. Wow. Must be proud of your. Yeah, I, I'm proud. And I hope they are. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to my nine to five and I hate this job and I'm making this money. What is this all for? And I think, well, you give your money meaning. You could say mm. that it's for your kid, for your kid's future, for your kid's education, mm. for your future. Mm. Uh, what a good reframe there. You give your money meaning. That's a good quote. Okay. Well, I read in the book and maybe the, you, uh, there's some application here. Well, I think there is quite a bit, but you talk about the default setting in one of the chapters. And when we talk about money, money stories, these scripts that we've been given, I think there's a, a direct parallel to the words this default setting. Maybe for the listeners who, who haven't read the book, who are going to go get the book after this episode, but I uh, could touch on default setting and what is that default setting and how can we use that to enhance our relationship with money? Do you think that we are born with an innate way of dealing with money, Sean? I don't know. I feel like the socialization of our parents, our environment, everything around us have such an influence on us. But I don't know for sure if we're born with an innate, I guess, personality or way to deal with money. Like 
if we removed all those external environments, would that personality still come out? I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we're strongly influenced by the social learning, our external environments, our parents, uh, traumatic mm-hmm. events, non-traumatic events, early experiences with money. And I think that just perpetuates like a snowball in minus five degrees weather in Edmonton, Alberta, because it rolls really, <laughs> it rolls really nice when it's about that weather. It's an interesting topic. I think some, some, there's been some talk amongst experts saying that they have anecdotally seen, for example, their children behave in certain ways that even though they're raised in the same situation by the same people, they are hardwired very differently when it comes to saving and spending. And I think I use an example in my book with uh, what were you like with your Halloween candy? You know, when you were the littlest of kids, were you were you hoarding it? And saving, making sure that it's, you know, I had this, I would lay it all out. I would organize it so that it would last until next October. Meanwhile, my husband would eat it all in one day and then go to school and try to, to negotiate for more, which is so his personality. <laughs> but yes, when we talk about default settings, we sort of talk about some of the things that you go back to that. Yes, you may learn in new information. Yes, you may be handed a budget. But there are some habits and there are some things that are, you know, cooked into you the way that you are. And sometimes it takes a step back before embarking on this new journey with this new financial planner or whatever it is. It's also hopefully you have a coach or a planner who's going to also ask you, well, what are your habits? You know, what what, the last three purchases that you made that were unplanned? When did you Mm. make them? Why did you make them? How are you feeling? Were you buying in in a time of stress? Do you buy when you're bored? Do you buy when you feel insecure or when you need a confidence booster or when you need people that you think you want people to love you? You want people to like you. So you treat them, whatever it is. This is kind of when you're looking back on some of your, you know, the way that you are with money mm-hmm. and somebody can, can and move your debt over to a new credit card with the low interest rate. But those habits are going to drive you to mm-hmm. get yourself back into debt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If that is what you usually do. I like that answer. And I change, I, my, you've influenced my answer is that I think money is, accelerant for our personalities. I think like those personalities are innate. And I agree with you is that, that our personalities will drive the money, our money decisions and habits, because that's our our set personality where I was thinking before, or I do feel is that our past experience are going to influence the emotions that we have around their money. So I think we have the emotions that we sometimes can unpack that have come from our childhood. We get like rule of thumbs from our parents, but are those innate personalities. Yeah. I think those are hardwired. I also feel like we're hardwired thanks to our ancestors to avoid money because in uh, the tribal days, they, we couldn't hoard. You get kicked out of the tribe. So we're just with these personalities, emotions, we're bound to fail at money. Melissa, we need your book now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now the big question here, you talk a lot about happiness. So we talked about our money stories, these personalities. I think the default setting is great. There's some listed ones in the book that uh, have been proven through the research. You talk a lot about happiness. So now I want to go towards money and happiness. And for me, I mean, I've been fascinated with money by the frustration it provides and then the the amazingness of being able, that's not even a word, but I, I, you made up words. So I made up word, the imaginative, I think you made up, but amazingness. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> Best word ever. Um, but like money allows you one year, me and my brothers took my dad to New Orleans to see Bruce Springsteen. We laid seven hours to watch him and it was amazing, but we needed money to do that. So this dynamic between money. And I really feel like we're in this 
script or mold that people go to school, they finish high school, they got to go to college, they buy a car, buy a house, they upgrade their wardrobes and post it all over social media to get that validation that ah, I've made it. But we know that, you know, people are stressed right now and we feel depleted. And despite doing all these things, checking the boxes, we still feel that, hey, where's this happiness? So happy go money is a lot about buying happiness. So can you please tell us how do we buy happiness? And can you send the Amazon link for that in the show notes so that uh, we can give everyone happiness? Absolutely. Happiness, one click buy away. (laughs) Yeah. All seriousness, your chapter is called buying happiness or how to buy happiness. I can't remember, but what is your experience with this? And how would you answer this question? Well, I would answer this question by pointing to you buying tickets to see Bruce Springsteen with your dad. Amazing. You know, what a lovely gift. First of all, you, you may have covered off a lot of ways to buy happiness with that one purchase. One of the things that according to the research, if you spend money on experiences, you are getting a greater bang for your buck than when you spend on material goods because you are enjoying them with people. Also, it's, you know, it's you tell the story later on, you remember it. It feels good Mm. to to think about this purchase later. Whereas, you know, sometimes you might buy something and it's enjoyed once and it's gone. So yay, you (laughs) on buying experiences The second thing is you also spent your money on someone else and worldwide surveys show that whether you're rich or whether you were poor, if you spend money on charity or someone else, you feel more satisfied with life and you feel richer. So (laughs) that was also a good use of money, according to science, when it comes to buying happiness. And third, I'm assuming you bought the tickets ahead of time because you wanted good seats and not like craptacular seats. I made Mm -hmm. that word up. That's a good one. (laughs) And so you are buying anticipation. You are buying something ahead of time. And every day you are happy thinking about this great thing that's to come, which is basically the opposite of what a lot of um, Western consumers do is Mm -hmm. they actually get it and they pay for later on their credit cards. But you're buying something and you're um, I'm assuming now you also bought it with cash, but you know, you're buying something and you're looking forward to it, mm. which is what we all can be doing actually in the pandemic right now. We could be saving for something. We can be putting money aside right now for that post pandemic vacation, or we can actually pay for it now and then enjoy it later. Mm. So to summarize that, you said maybe those three points, just so everyone hears that clearly, because that's great. Yes. Experiences on, ex- you can spend money on experiences. You can spend money on charity and on others. You can spend money on anticipation, on anticipated treats. Obviously, if you ate a chocolate bar every day for the rest of your life, that chocolate bar would not be as special. But if you, you know, paid for the chocolate bar and it was coming in a month, then you mm. could savor it. You know, there's this great study that shows, hey, you get to, you know, go on a date or kiss the celebrity of your choice. Do you want to... Um, kiss them three days from now, uh, 24 hours from now, or in an hour. And people were willing to pay the most for this trend, this fantastic opportunity uh, three days from now because they wanted to bask in the anticipation. Uh And then a fourth thing that I would say that you could spend your money on to be happier, according to research is time savers. People who value time over money are happier. You can actually make yourself happier by valuing time over money. And that takes different forms for people. I mean, that could be paying somebody to do your taxes because you don't like it. That could be paying for the the direct flight versus the, the layover, even though it's more expensive. You know, just so listeners know, I didn't use that Bruce Springsteen example. We didn't pre-plan this. 
but when you're saying basking in it, me and my brother sent back messages so much about different concerts, about Bruce Springsteen. And like, just to your point there, like, Oh, we were just loving it. And we got there and it was just surreal. So it's the journey, right? Not just the destination. Yeah. Now I know you talk about mindfulness and this just popped in my head. I don't know the answer. I'm asking you this because I'm curious what you think. So people talk about being the present moment when we're being mindful. Do you feel like this is, I guess that is being, I was, I was thinking like, is that going against mindfulness? If I buy something in 30 days or in six months or whatever, and now I'm thinking about that all the time, am I taking away the present present moment? Or do you feel like that's being focused on the excitement of the present moment? Oh, I think the latter. I think that enjoying the anticipation is yeah. just sitting with whatever you're feeling now, right. as opposed to um, it's coming, it's coming, you know, I, I'm just going to focus on, on later. And, Sometimes it's just sitting with what you have now and feeling it. And I think a lot of times we, well, we've been conditioned that we want something. We want it now. We want it yesterday. (laughs) Why is it on my doorstep? I just ordered it. But there is definitely something to be said about just looking forward to something Mm -hmm. and and sitting with that feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that is the moment, that feeling you have right now. So I like that sitting with the the feeling. People ask me, you know, what was it like for you to be pregnant? And aside from, you know, being uncomfortable and, you know, possibly peeing yourself every time you (laughs) laughed or sneezed, I loved the idea that something exciting was coming. And so that's why I loved being pregnant. It felt Uh like to me that it was, that was the day before Christmas for nine months. I just thought, oh, Something something awesome is coming. That's why I enjoy being pregnant. That's why I felt happy. Uh, you know that? Yeah, that Christmas thing. I, I can't. I can't understand the pregnancy th- thing. I've never done that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the Christmas thing. That's exactly. It. That's a really good example of of my question about the whatever the tickets in six months. It's, it's that feeling. And again, to your words, sitting with that feeling. So uh, I. And then after it. you open all your presents, you're kind of like, oh. Yeah. And I think there's some research that people are happier before vacation than they are in the moments mm. afterwards. Yeah. And prepaying those vacations. You talk a lot about ways to, I guess, embody the idea of happiness, not to become happy in itself. And one thing that you talk a lot about is income. You, you give a couple different research examples. Why don't you touch on what your research has shown you in terms of income levels? Because we all know that only if we made more, we'd be happy, right? Yes, it's the chasing of the never-ending rainbow, right? Mm. Find the pot of gold and you see it and you're excited and then you think this pot looks really damn small. I need to go find another rainbow. And the inevitability of that is our curse, essentially, as a human being when it comes to adaptability. You know, we just kind of adapt to whatever we have. That's It's a beautiful gift, actually, because no matter how difficult life is or no matter how wonderful life is, we just, you know, It's the new normal. Mm -hmm. We get used to that. So when people ask, well, what is the ideal amount of money to make in order to be happy? There's a lot of research that has been trotted out over the years to try to answer this question. And they put that threshold at about, I think, 60 to $75,000 US per single family household pre-tax. And that is specific to day-to-day happiness, basically how you feel in this moment. When it comes to your life as a whole, when you give a, a judgment of your life in terms of how satisfied you are with it, that number is closer to $90,000 US pre-tax per single family household. And I mean, these are averages. Yeah. So obviously people live on 
much less and be happy or they will want more and be happier. But the idea here, I guess, is that once you have hit a baseline, once you've, you know, you are able to sleep and eat indoors, you're not worried about creditors knocking at your door, you've taken care of all your basic needs. After that, more money doesn't necessarily make you happier. There's actually interesting studies that show that more money can be associated with a decline in happiness. And then you think, yeah, you're like, wow, why would I be less happy with more money, Melissa? That sounds totally ridiculous. <laughs> and then I say, no, 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 wait a minute. Just just think about it. It actually makes absolutely the most perfect sense because you're probably working more. And you're going to be spending less time with your family. You probably have a higher paying job, which comes with more stress, more responsibilities. You have more stuff. Mm -hmm. And there is a correlation between having more stuff and having more material goods and a decrease in your enjoyment of the little things in life. And maybe you are now because you're at a different level with your income. You're looking around and trying to keep up with the Joneses. And because you're playing that comparison game, that also makes you more unhappy. Mm. And so you've also attained this wonderful achievement that you think was supposed to make you happy. But then in reality, you think, oh, wait, I'm the same person as I was, you know, a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm not necessarily happier. You know, there's all that research that shows that people, how people feel after winning an Oscar or, mm. or after, um, after winning the Super Bowl, they just kind of feel blah. Yeah. And that's just because you have this realization that, hey, guys, life just continues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may have a little bit more money or you may have achieved that goal. But what makes life worth living is the pursuit mm -hmm. of the goal. Right. And the pursuit of whatever it is you want to be doing, which is why you're making the money in the first place. So that's why we have this conversation with happy go money. That's why I'm talking to you right now. It's to stop and ask yourself, what exactly is my money for? Mm. Why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard to buy X? Okay. Then you better be sure you better damn be sure that X is actually going to make you happy. Otherwise, what are you doing? Wow. I'm glad we re recorded that. That was fantastic. Mic drop. Uh, yeah, I'm no kidding. <laughs> oh, wow. So on that, what do you find is, uh, good strategies for, I have a quote somewhere, but I don't know where it is, uh, about uh, from your book, aligning our money with our values. So like you said, something that's damn important to me. How do you find people can do this or through your research, through your personal experience? Is this trial and error? Do you have any insight for people who are like that? What Melissa said there speaks to me. Now, how do I do it? I'm going to name maybe about four things that I think is important when it comes to protecting your happiness. The first thing is when I said, identify the things that are valuable to you and to try to find that happiness outside of trying to buy it outside of money. That is not something that is done in a day with a spreadsheet mm or <laughs> on a piece of paper. It is something that I continue to do. But the fact is, is that I try and I keep having that conversation over and over and over again with myself of what do I value? And those values change over time, right? You change, your, your priorities change and just to revisit that. And then you can see once you've had clarity on your, once you've created some clarity on your situation, then you have somewhere to start from. Maybe that's writing down some of your priorities, some of the, some of your values, some of your goals. Maybe that's also putting down your the inflow and outflow of your money on a piece of paper, so you know, okay, this is you know 
how much money is coming in and where it's going. Is this a good use of where it's going? So the first is just taking stock of what you're doing now and trying to figure out whether that aligns with your goals and your values. The second thing is, I think that people underestimate how stressful debt is. And so if you have a unhealthy relationship with debt, that is a relationship that I would prioritize in terms of getting that in check. Another thing is, and I, I cannot overstate this, but you need to have an, an in-case crap fund. You know, my emergency fund has rescued me over and over again. It rescued me when I lost my job. It was there when my husband was ill in 2014 and then in 2019. I mean, it wouldn't have helped the situation because, you know, when you have health problems, you have health problems. No amount of money is going to fix that. But money issues would have made that situation so much worse. And so we thought 2020 was going to be my year. (laughs) I thought 2019 was uh, absolute hell. Let's bring it on 2020. And then, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, my husband and I are both self-employed and our incomes took a huge, huge, huge strike. And again, emergency funds that floated us and I didn't have to worry about that. And so that is something that I think is a huge a thing that we cannot overestimate the importance of protecting your future happiness. Mm. You know, I need to say my background, I'm, I'm a CFP. My, my background is in the spreadsheets and financial advice is always about maximizing. Uh, I mean, it's changing a bit more behavioral is coming in CFP program, but anyways, traditionally it's how do you minimize the expense ratios in your portfolio? How do you maximize your return? But I personally feel like these three speak volumes to the vast majority of everybody. They impact everybody. So thank you so much for those three, because that's what really matters. The other stuff can get solved on its own. But when you have these, like you said, with debt, um, that's a crippling feeling that many, many Canadians feel. If we look at the statistics, I like how you're advocating to be mindful of that and that it's really impactful on us. And I, I'm going to change my verbiage to in case crap fund. I like that better than emergency fund. So thank you for that. <laughs> but your first point with the values, I just... I don't know if in my book I call it that or if I actually use the S word, but I didn't know if you're audience was PG. So I chose not to swear. (laughs) I I make a play on the F word in my title. So it's good. (laughs) Okay. Cause I I noticed I was like, he said F word. He didn't, he he didn't actually full out. (laughs) No, but you swear in your book. So it's good. I do. I do. You know what? I actually swear a lot. It's I have kids and sometimes I just have to say, sorry, don't just don't say what mommy says. (laughs) But you know, I, want to go back on point number one. And it reminds me of this idea of like living in congruency or incongruent. And that's that idea of like my actions might not align with my values. And your, your book talks so much about that idea of, uh, I found the quote that I want to pull from your book, but it's yes, money makes people weird. It's not about the dollars and cents. It's about your identity values and vanity. And I really like how you focus on this values and the identity. And are we spending our money in congruency with what we value because we can go a whole lifetime thinking, chasing. And if we don't have people like yourself talking about this, then uh, I feel like there's going to be some people at the end, at the end, getting to 65, 70 being like, wow, what happened? So thank you for the work you're doing. 
Well, thank you so much for giving me the space to talk about it. So I want to say something that you speak a lot about happiness and pursuing happiness, not arriving at, but pursuing it and boarding the wild flight path of life that has ups and downs happiness. But like we've talked about, it's the journey that really has those moments of happiness. But you really showed that you're not just talking about this stuff, I feel, when you decided to not go back to your job after your, the birth of your f- first son. Can you speak to the decision that went through your, your mind? I know you talk about a certain, how much it costs you, but really, can you, can you elaborate on that? And I think this touches home because I'm a father of two young kids, and I just think it's nothing speaks more to someone's core values if, it's, if family's one of them than doing what you did in the peak kind of momentum or trajectory of your career. So let's just hear how, I guess, what was going through your mind and why did you make that decision? When I was growing up, I saw this pursuit of money through work. And I never, ever thought that I would ever take time off. I I actually bought this townhouse in the boonies that has triangular shaped rooms like who would build triangular shaped rooms you can't fit a bed in a room that's like that anyways we purposely bought this house that wasn't my dream house because i actually thought that my husband would stay home with the kids if we had them because i was going to just chase my career and just sprint (laughs) keep sprinting i'll have a baby it'll just 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 pop out i'll keep running you know but As you know, life hopefully changes your perspective in so many ways. And when I had my son, I just realized that time, I'm not going to get this time back. I really need to reevaluate how I spend my time because that is the finite resource. You can always make another dollar. You cannot get another minute back. And I was just talking about this with my best friend today when she was saying, you know, she was feeling hopeful for the end of the pandemic, you know, with the rollout of vaccinations. And she just said, I feel hopeful, but at the same time, I feel a little bit sad because then the kids will be back in school and I will be back in the office and we'll be back in the old routine of our nine to five. We see each other at the end of the day for a quick dinner and it's rushed rushed to to bedtime. And uh, she said, I really, it made me realize that even though I feel I'm looking so forward to being out and about again, and you're returning to normal where I can hug people. I also need to live for now and not, you know, wish this time away. Mm -hmm. I need to enjoy what I can enjoy. And hopefully that will help with this anxiety right now. Hopefully that will help with make this, this, hard part of our lives a little bit easier in the idea that it is finite. And so with anything that ends, then we should probably take a moment to uh, appreciate the lessons that we are being taught. Wow. I, uh, I think about, about my parents who are grandparents now, you're, you're, you made me think of them in your quote, in your story here, how much would they spend to go back to be able to have that time with their kids again? I think a lot of money, you know, so. For sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think about that. I, I mean, I, 
my kids, my oldest kid is six. And I already, I already, mm, yeah. <laughs> I always think about, oh man, if I could go back in a time machine, if I could just jump into a hot tub and go back, you know, five years, I just want to squish him yeah. <laughs> when, when he wasn't running away. And so, yeah, you know, I think you can't get, you, you're not going to get this time back. So what do you want to use this time doing? Wow. Very, very impactful. Uh, your, is your son's name in your book? You, you dedicate to Jet. Is that your son? Jed is my oldest. Jed. I have another now. And what's his name? Bo. Bo. Let's say mm-hmm. that, I forget the guy's name, Chris something from TED, the TED speaking series. If he called you to do a TED talk in San Francisco with like 20,000 people and Jet and Bo were to call- Not right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it would be, it'd be in person. In person. No. Virtually. If he asked Chris, can't remember his last name, but if he asked Jet and Bo to introduce you on stage- what would you hope they said about their mom? Oh my goodness. I have no idea. What would I hope that they said about me? That's so hard. You know, somebody else asked me that of what do you hope they say about you at your funeral? And I yeah. thought that is so morbid. <laughs> I am hanging up the phone right now. Um, I think I would hope that my sons, I think that I would hope that anyone would say that, I am someone who tries every single day to leave this world a little bit better that I'm just, just trying to help with whether that's through a little bit of information or kindness or making someone laugh or giving my time to a family, a stranger. I think that would make me happy. That is a wonderful answer. And I can tell by, just you're writing your book. I feel like you're doing that for everyone who picks it up. And just the, the joy you bring to reading that book or like listening to it is, is remarkable. And my last question for you. So you get on stage and your topic is Melissa's message to Bo and Jet on how to have a good relationship with money. What would the theme of your TED talk entail? I don't know if it's a theme, but I would just tell them that you have innate worth nothing you buy, no amount of money you make will ever change that. And so money is just a tool. You will decide what kind of life you will live, uh, who you'll be in service of, hopefully others as well as yourself. And then you will use that money to do that. And hopefully it won't be that money is what drives you. That's the mic drop. Thank you so much, Melissa. I, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoy the work you're doing. I think you're making a massive difference for everyone listening. We're going to really recommend that they get a copy of your book, audio or hard copy. And I just think you're doing much needed work in the personal finance space in a, in a field that's flooded with spreadsheets and interest rates and stocks and bonds, which is important. We need to know those things, but I think you're doing such a service. So thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, Sean. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Melissa as much as I did. As I mentioned a couple times, go out, buy her book. It is amazing. Happy Go Money. Until next time, have a great day.